So tonight I'm going to be speaking to you about the topic of going for refuge and as Ratnaguna rightly said actually um, I'm very pleased to be speaking about this topic because it's one I care about very much very 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 much but it's not one that I've cared about very much since I've been a Buddhist it's had to grow and one, one of the things I want to kind of draw out in this talk is that our Buddhist practice unfolds if we put in the effort our Buddhist practice unfolds and certain things happen with that unfolding. And going for refuge is right at the heart of Buddhist practice. And it's right at the heart of our own movement, of the order of which I am a member of. Sangharakshita, who, who is there on the shrine, who kind of, um, started the order and the movement, wrote of going for refuge thus. He said, it is the central and decisive indeed the definitive act of the Buddhist life and he continues one does not go for refuge because one is a Buddhist but one is a Buddhist because one goes for refuge and I think those words just under, underline the importance of the topic which I'm going to be talking about tonight so one is a Buddhist because one goes for refuge in other words one's Buddhist life unfolds out of this going for refuge and I am very very grateful indeed to my teacher Sangharakshita um, for pointing out again and again and again and again the centrality of going for refuge in the Buddhist life um, and over the years of practice I've gradually come to appreciate the meaning and the significance of going for refuge um, in, in, this, in, the, in the spiritual life which I must say has been a, a very rewarding process indeed so and, and out of that um, rewarding process is a, is a very deep gratitude to Sangharakshita for his clarity in, in, in uh, putting going for refuge at the centre of Buddhist life. And it's really interesting. When you read, he wrote a book called the History, My History of Going for Refuge. And in that, something which I think I certainly took for granted, you know, the, the centrality of going for refuge, it didn't occur to, it took many years of exploration for him to come to the conclusion that going for refuge is at the heart of Buddhist practice. And um, it just underlined to me uh, how much I can take for granted um, Sangraksha as a, as, a, as a really you know, outstanding thinker and, and, and clarifier, if you like, of the principles of the Dharma. So I, th I think the importance of going for refuge is also reflected where the going for refuge section is placed in the, in the Sevenfold Puja. In it, for me, going for refuge is at the heart of the puja. It's, it's at the heart of the puja. It's, it's around which everything else revol revolves. Before the going for refuge section, you've got, you're building up the spiritual mood which uh, naturally takes you to going for refuge. So you've got worship, you know, developing faith and confidence in the Buddha. And that faith and confidence spills over in your desire to practice, which is what going for refuge is all about, as we'll see a little later. And the subsequent stages following going for refuge are, are kind of working out the implications of, of what happens when you go for refuge. You know, one naturally wants to, you know, kind of purify one's being. One, and, and, and there's that beautiful section right at the end of the puja, transference and merit and self-surrender, where you realise that you're not doing this just for yourself. You're doing it for the benefit of all. And I think this is a really, really important aspect of, of this term going for refuge, the altruistic dimension of going for refuge so going for refuge is important I, I think its importance is reflected where, it, where it's situated in the puja 
the sevenfold puja, which is what you've been looking at. And the area of, of going for refuge, it's a huge topic. There's been a lot written about it because it's so important. But what I hope to, to, to do tonight's talk is to kind of pull out why I think it's important. And I'll be considering the following questions. What is meant by the term going for refuge? What, what are we going on about? Why is it of, of such fundamental importance to Buddhist practice? What does one go for refuge from? What does one go for refuge to? And why would anybody want to go for refuge anyway? What's the point? Why bother? Why not just keep life as it is? Surely that's the easiest option, isn't it? And how does one go for refuge? So these are the kind of questions, when I was thinking about this, this topic, which popped up into my mind, and I hope to address all of them in one way or another. So firstly, I just want to look at the term, quite briefly, going for refuge. And from there, I want to look at um, what motivates us to go for refuge. So the Pali term that going for refuge translates is saranagamana. And we say sarananga charmi in the in, in the puja. So garmana is quite simple. It just means the fact or state of going, of a movement, a journey, a walk, or it means striving for the leading of pursuit. So there's some pretty weighty words in that bunch. So going for is a pretty accurate translation of this term garmana. But let's not... let's also remember that um, there's also, it can also translate as a movement, a journey, a walk. So these terms for me, they illustrate there's a lot of activity in this going for. Seminar means a shelter, house, refuge or protection. So in going for refuge in the Buddhist, in, in the Buddhist um, sense, we're going, we're going for shelter, we're going for refuge or protection. And what, what, so what are we found finding shelter, protection, refuge in? Well, it's the Buddha and his teaching. Within the context of the Sangha, in other words, the three jewels, we're going for refuge in our own way to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. We seek refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha for guidance in our lives. As I'll come on to you later, it's not, it's not about running away from, far from it. In fact, totally the opposite. We seek refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha for guidance in our lives. The, the Buddha and Dharma and Sangha slowly become very important reference, points of reference in our life. So if we have um, uh, like a bereavement or an illness, we start to bring the Dharmic perspective upon that and you know, the Dharmic perspective of things change, things are impermanent and, and so forth. But in, in, when I say we, we seek refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, uh, I'll, I'll try and flesh out a little later in the talk. So a question for me straight away is, well, what do we take refuge from? What do we seek protection from, shelter from? I think you all know the answer. I think most of you all know the answer to this question, but I'm going to go into it anyway because, it's, again, it's a very important area. Put simply, we take refuge from the inherent, inherent in, uh, unsatisfactoriness the, the painful, the insecure elements of life, the inherent insecurity in life. So we take refuge from those, those th things. But there's also a movement towards in going for refuge. 
in the movement towards the refuge provided by the Dharma on the basis of a deep attraction to it. Something in us is deeply attracted to the Buddha's teaching and that is the kind of forward momentum of going for refuge. So there's, there's a lot of kind of momentum involved in, in going for refuge. But uh, let, let's first consider this question of satisfactoriness because I think it's a very, very important thing to reflect upon. So we're going for refuge partly uh, well, I certainly am, because um, um, there's an inherent unsatisfactoriness in life that whatever I've tried hasn't managed to kind of take it away until I came across the Dharma. So the Pali word for unsatisfactoriness, I think, as I, as we, I think we all know, is dukkha. And I'm sure you're very familiar <coughs> with this term. But I, I think the traditional image um, which is given for dukkha is, is, is very, very useful. That, that the image being... Uh, the ill-fitting chariot wheel. You know, we're, we're out in the chariot, it's a beautiful summer's day. The birds are singing, the skies are blue. We're out on the road, freedom. But the, the, the ill-fitting chariot wheel, it's bumpy. You know, um, we realise, for example, that this glorious day out in the chariot has got to end. We realise that the person um, standing next to us on the chariot is not really somebody who we get on with and who we don't want to spend the day with, really. So despite the beauty around us and the sense of anticipation of this journey on the chariot, there's something not right. You know, there's something not quite right. And, and this image of the ill-fitting chariot wheel, we're going along and, and life is a bit bumpy, um, reflects that whatever we do sometimes, no matter how perfect, they, if we look, well I certainly, if, there's a, if I look a bit closely, there's something not quite right. So... So we are motivated, or some of us, I, might, I must say some of us, and I'll come on to that in a minute, motivated to, to turn towards um, alternative solutions that, you know, to, to what's available to us, you know, the, the paths of marriage, career, and so forth. Um, we're, t- we, we're kind of motivated to, to look for solutions to this dukkha um, beyond the kind of normal, normal channels. And for... for some of us, that includes investigating uh, spiritual life, you know, the spiritual kind of um, answers to this problem of dukkha. And it's dukkha, of course, which can really motivate us, it, well, some of us. And, and incidentally, um, coming back to this word refuge, when, when I say we take refuge uh, in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha from dukkha, when, when, sometimes this word refuge, people say to me, well, that sounds a bit pathetic, really, doesn't it? It sounds a bit pathetic. You're running away, Maharaj You're running away. And to be honest, they couldn't be further away from the truth. Because going for refuge to the Buddha and his teachings, within the context of the Sangha, certainly does not involve running away from Dukkha. Not at all. Quite the opposite. So uh, rather going for refuge in the Buddhist tradition involves taking a a kind of a a persistent and sometimes hard look, a good hard look at our lives and a good hard look at um, uh, at this experience of dukkha, if you have it. And examining this this sense of dukkha in light of the Buddha's teachings. So for example, my, my sister has recently been diagnosed with cancer and the news was very painful. But it's set up a tension. The reality of the impermanence of somebody that I love very dearly. That, that, my, my rational mind says, yes, of course, we're all going to die, including my beloved sister. 
But there's also a deep longing in my being. There's a deep longing saying, no, 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 no. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. And so there's a tension between, between um, these two things of uh, accepting impermanence on a rational level, but not accepting it on, on, a, on, a, on a deeper emotional level. And I think this tension which is set up between this kind of rational knowing the truth of impermanence and, and the kind of irrational resistance to it is, is a very important tension because within that tension uh, one can reflect upon the Dharma uh, very, very effectively, I think. And when asked what he taught, the Buddha replied simply, or quite early on when in, in his interactions with people, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Now that is quite a statement, isn't it? I teach, the suf- um, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha is saying here that he understands the universal causes of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, and not only that, he's found a solution to it. Now, as, as I say, that is quite a staggering statement to make. But you see, I believe that <coughs> I believe I believe what he says. I believe that he did understand uh, the causes of dukkha, and I believe that he found um, solutions to the problem of dukkha. And he found the solutions not by turning away from the facts of life, but looking at them unflinchingly. Looking at them. And in a nutshell, the Buddha said that we suffer because we're in an argument with the universe which we're not going to win. We're not going to win. The Buddha spoke of what's called the topsy-turvies. So we want permanence. I do not want my sister to die. I don't want myself. I don't want to die. Um, and deep down, I believe that things are permanent, and you know, it's quite a shock when these things kind of emerge in one's life. I don't want my teeth to decay because I don't want to go. I don't want to go to the dentist and face the prospect of, of painful drill, drilling. I don't want my body to lose fitness or health. I want uh, when I use the car to start every time I turn the, the key. I want my bike every time I get on it to be free of punctures and the wheels go round when I pedal. And I make assumptions that all these things will be in place. That, that I make assumptions that, that deep down that, that permanency is the way the universe is. But the Buddha says, no, it's not the way things are. You know, please, please wake up. Look, look, look at life. Look at the evidence. Things are impermanent. Everything is impermanent. And the Buddha said, well, we want things to be substantial. And the, uh, but the Buddha said, I'm sorry, they're not substantial. When, you know, Mahashraddha, try and find the Mahashraddha-ness in you. You, ex- you experience this kind of subs- subs- something of substance in Mahashraddha behind the name. But try and look, Mahashraddha, try and look where that Mahashraddha, where is it? And is it in your head? Is it behind your eyes? Is it in your feet? Is it in your toes? No. And yet, I cling on to this substantial sense of Mahashraddha and I do unskillful things on behalf of this substantial Mahashraddha. And the Buddha said that as long as we keep relating to the universe in ways uh, which, which are opposite to the way, it, the, the way it is, we will suffer. We will experience dukkha. And Buddhist practice then is aimed at eradicating suffering by, uh, or dukkha uh, by encouraging us to align the way we think the way we speak, the way we act, to how things actually are. Not how we want them to be, but how they actually are. And we achieve this by 
allow, uh, or kind of orient, in the Buddhist sense anyway, by orientating our lives towards the Buddha, towards the Dharma and, and the Sangha. We, 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 we kind of begin to understand Dukkha by making commitment to, to the Three Jewels. So my, my first encounters with... I, I've been motivated by Dukkha and attraction. And I just want to say a few words about that. I've been motivated in my going for refuge by, by, these, by a propulsion and an attraction. So my first encounter with Dukkha really hit home, and some of you know this story anyway, when I was about 14 and I started helping my dad um, deliver his, uh, his coal rounds in Dudlui and uh, the black country. And... Um, eh? Oh, sorry. Dudley. <laughs> and West Bromwich and other places in the black country. Um, and many of his customers were old. And many of them had, 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 had suffered bereavement quite recently. You know, the, the husband or the wife or the, or, the, or the child. And this really got me thinking. I thought, what is the point? What is the point of, this, of life if this is where you end up. And this story was repeated to me m- many times, many different times, by many different customers who we visited. How are you? Oh, I'm really sad. You know, I'm really sad. Okay, I'm really sad. And it just went, and uh, this went, this was a, a story which, as I say, was repeated. And it just really got me questioning. And, and I think that coal, I owe a lot to my dad being a coalman. And I, I owe a lot to... Uh, uh, wanting to earn some extra pocket money when I was 14 by hunking these bags of coal around which were sometimes almost as big as me. But it wasn't just Ducker that motivated me to, 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 to seek um, um, something different. I was pulled, you know, I was, I was pulled towards the beauty which I eventually found in the Dharma. From a very young age I was fascinated by the, the world around me the beauty of a dewdrop clinging to the blade of the grass just as it fell off. Light being refracted by that same dewdrop just as it fell off the tip, the, the tip of a, a blade of grass. The grace, the beauty, the serenity of, of wild swans gliding across the surface of a still river on a balmy sun, su- um, summer afternoon the wonder and mystery of the night sky. You name it. Wherever I looked, there was this kind of sense of wonder and mystery. And I wanted to understand the beauty and mystery. I wanted some answers. It wasn't enough for me just to look at it. I wanted to understand. And I tried to address this kind of understanding through science. But I realised that although science can provide some really interesting and fascinating insights into how things actually are, Um, through the biological and physical worlds in particular, it had little little impact upon my experience of Dukkha. The solutions I realised were were to be found in my own mind, and that's where Buddhism comes in. The solutions are to to be found in my own mind. So, in response to this, the propulsive force of Dukkha, which for me started quite early, and a powerful attraction... uh, I, I eventually ended up um, in uh, Buddhism. And I eventually, when I was ordained into the Western Buddhist order, took refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha for the rest of my life. But what does it mean to go for refuge to the Buddha, or to the Dharma for that matter, or for the Sangha? 
The Buddha is an enlightened human being and that's what I take refuge in. He's not a mere human being who's got some really interesting psychological solutions to, to, to make me a bit happier. He's not uh, just a, uh, an anarchist or a, a witch, witch, uh, who rebelled against the Brahminical society. He is, uh, to me, he is deathly uh, a person who gained enlightenment and that is what I take refuge in. And like you, know, like you and, and me perhaps, as a young man he was deeply troubled by the frailty of human life. The inevitability of death. The inevitability of death. He's troubled him. And he left home. He joined the tradition of wandering truth seekers. And after enjoying many, enduring many trials of body and mind, he eventually gained what we now call enlightenment. And I personally believe that the Buddha um, saw what he said he saw. I do believe that the Buddha experienced the nature of reality for himself. And I also believe that we too can experience that same experience if that's what we wish to do. Well, it's not obviously as simple as that. I am personally quite fascinated and and intrigued by the nature of of reality as expanded by the Buddha. And at my best, I find great inspiration from the vision uh, of, of existence the Buddha offers us. So the Buddha, as an enlightened human being, represents to me the potential inherent in all of us. Not just to change, you know, not just to become a bit happier and smoke less fags or, or whatever, but, but to utterly transform consciousness. And I think you can get a glimpse of this kind of utter uh, transformation, this turning about in the deepest center, seat of consciousness, sometimes in meditation. You know, you get a sense of of, of, of so the, the, the possibility of change in meditation as the mind just kind of lets go of these stultifying um, um, tendencies towards greed, hatred and delusion. And the Buddha said of his teachings that they had the one taste and that was of, like the ocean which has one taste of salt. His teachings have one taste and that is the liberation. And I believe that's the case. And I, found, I find the example of the Buddha enormously impressive his courage, I don't think I could do it. His, his, his determination to get to the uh, bottom of Dukkha. And his dedication to find the solutions. I go, you know, I go for refuge to the Buddha as an example of, of courage as well. The Buddha was a pioneer. And any pioneer, whether it's the first person up to Everest, the, per- the first person up to Everest is the one who we recognise for their achievements. We don't recognise the hundreds of people who now do it because they are not pioneers. They are following well-trodden footsteps. The Buddha was a pioneer in terms of revealing to us uh, the true nature of existence through his enlightened experiences. And this, any pioneer, requires a great deal of courage. The Buddha never gave up. I think I would have done Siddhartha as he was before his enlightenment. I think I would have done and there are some wonderful accounts in the Pali Canon of before his enlightenment of deliberately putting himself in situations of extreme fear and dread. Going to the jungle in places which are in folklore traditionally inhabited by spirits which can just rip your flesh clean off your bones. Not just folklore, you know, dangers from apparent folklore, but also the dangers of wild animals. But the Buddha 
um, Siddhartha put himself into very, very extreme situations of fear and dread uh, all for the sake of trying to understand um, uh, the mind so when I take refuge in the Buddha I take refuge in him in the sense that he's, he's an inspired example uh, of somebody um, who, who was uh, a pioneer and I do, as I say I do believe that the Buddha's account of reality is true, accurate and profound of how things really are and we can take refuge in the Buddha in everyday life by reflecting upon his life. In a meeting, you know, somebody's giving you a hard time. Well, how would the Buddha respond in this particular situation? How would the Buddha respond to this feeling of, you know, not wanting my sister to die? What does the Dharma have to say about these kind of very challenging situations? How would the enlightened mind think, act and speak in, the, in, in situation X, in situation Y? in situation Z and by calling to mind these kind of uh, thoughts we, we can slowly change we can slowly become um, that which we uh, look up to <coughs> and it's Im- I think uh, it's important the, the, the connection for me with the Buddha is not just one from the, you know, from the sterile distant cliffs of history I'm not just looking at the Buddha as some who lived two and a half thousand years ago. Over the years of practice, I do feel you know, a, a very strong heart connection with the Buddha as well. And indeed, when I was ordained, uh, I was ordained in what is a garden shed from B&Q, £29.99. <laughs> but this garden shed at the retreat centre of Pamaloka was transformed into something uh, of, 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 of deepest significance. And when, in, inside, I won't tell you what happened, but... Um, I got a very strong sense that I was being ordained into a lineage, a living lineage which went right back to the Buddha. And that was where my connection was really strengthened with the Buddha. I felt a definite living connection with the Buddha. (coughs) He's not just a mere historical figure for me. So I would say to you, get to know the Buddha. Get to know him. Talk with people who, who are really inspired by the Buddha. Read some of the Pali Canon. Of, you know, if, you are being ch- if you are, for example, challenged by fear in your life, try and find some instances in the Pali Canon where Siddhartha or, or the Buddha confronted fear and, and see what he did. Get to, know, you know, get to know the Buddha. And then, so one takes refuge in the Buddha, but also one takes refuge in the Dharma. One has confidence that the Buddha saw what he claimed to see and that his account of reality was profound and accurate, as expressed in the Dharma. And the vision he offers us of human existence within the Dharma attracts us more and more. It even excites us. It certainly did uh, with me. We have confidence in, in Pratijit Samapada as expanded by the Buddha. We have confidence in the teachings and that diligent practice of them can indeed lead us to the... To the to, to something towards the insights which the Buddha experienced. We have confidence in the Noble Eightfold Path as a, as a path which, will, which can lead to change. We have confidence in the Threefold Path, Threefold Way, the Six Perfections of Four Noble Truths, whatever, you know, whatever a particular Dharma teaching really does it for you. We have confidence in meditation as expressed in the Dharma, as a way of directly working the mind. We have confidence in ethical practice, and so on and so forth. So uh, by taking refuge in the Dharma, it means 
having confidence that the Dharma actually works, that practicing the Dharma actually is a, it actually works. And then one takes refuge in the Sangha. If the Dharma is about change, then we need help in that change. Most of us cannot tread the spiritual path alone. We need encouragement. We need, sometimes we need a good ticking off. Um, any, any of you have tried to change, you know, some, some really radical, you know, some habits which are really deeply rooted in us, like uh, if you've ever smoked, um, giving up smoking can require a lot of support. Traditionally speaking, the Sangha is primarily composed of those who are uh, spiritually more advanced than we are. The great Bodhisattvas, the Arahants, and the stream entrants, and so on and so forth. It's a, the Buddhist tradition is full of some really quite uh, amazing figures. Together, the, these Bodhisattvas, Arahants, and stream entrants form the Arya Sangha, or the spiritual community in its highest sense. Secondarily, the Sangha is, is the community of, of of all Buddhists, of us, of those who go for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha in some way. In, go, in the case of the Arya Sangha, in going for refuge to this Sangha means opening ourselves up to the influence of those who are, are, are wider, um, who have a, a, a deeper and greater experience um, than ourselves. It consists in, in learning from them, being inspired by them, even reverencing them. In the case of the Sangha in the more ordinary sense, that's you know, me and you, it means enjoying spiritual fellowship with one another and helping one another on the path. Sometimes you may not need a high, highly advanced Bodhisattva to help you. All you need is an ordinary human being who is a little more developed perhaps spiritually than you are, or even just uh, is, is a bit more sensible than you are. And, and, and only too often I find sometimes at beginners' classes people are looking for this great guru, this great guru uh, who is so, so spiritually advanced. But what, if I met them, what would you do with them? What would they do with them? Sometimes what we, what, what we need is just a helping hand from where we are now. And this is we get this helping hand from, from each of us, from the, from the kind of ordinary sangha, if you like. So going for refuge is not a static process. Going for refuge, finding trust and confidence in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha is not static. It's a dynamic process. Taking refuge, and it's one that gradually deepens. The Buddha spoke of his uh, progress along the spiritual path as as like a gently uh, sloping ocean floor away from the, from the, from the shore. It just, the, the, there's a gradual slope to the, to the ocean floor as it leaves the, the shore. And the Buddha said, this is how progress is made in my spiritual uh, teachings. It's gradual for most of us. And, and, and I think this is reflected in the, in the way that the, the, kind of the movement is structured in, in, in helping us to gradually deepen our going for refuge. We have friends, we have mitras, we have order members, we have dharmacharis and dharmacharinis. So as a friend, you might be drawn to some aspects of Buddhism. 
and you begin to take some tentative steps towards the exploration of the Buddha and, and his Dharma. You might come along to introductory classes at a centre like this. You might go and to listen to a visiting teacher from a Tibet. You might explore Buddhism uh, via the internet. Your interest might grow into something stronger, into some kind of heart connection that you wish to pursue further. So you might become a Mitra. Becoming a Mitra, you declare that, you're, you're, that you are a Buddhist, that you will meditate regularly and practice the five precepts, including vegetarianism. You make a declaration that you will help out at the centre um, whenever you can and to make some contact uh, and with, with order members. And as a Mitra, I mean there's plenty of them in this room, plenty of Mitras in this room, you might find yourself becoming uh, increasingly involved with the movement and increasingly attracted to the beauty of the Buddhist spiritual ideal. You may find that your experience of meditation is becoming deeper. Your communication with other people is expanding and that you feel happier and less burdened by psychological conditioning. Eventually, you might find that your centre of gravity is kind of really orientating towards taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. When that point is reached, you start thinking perhaps of joining the order, of becoming an, uh, a member of the Western Buddhist order. Or put more traditionally in terms of going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And if, if the uh, order, members, uh, order members who are obviously ordained are convinced that your aspiration is genuine, you are ordained into the Western Buddhist order uh, in a beautiful ordination ceremony. And I would say my ordination ceremony is the most beautiful um, occurrence in my life. And in this ordination ceremony, you go for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. You express your desire to go for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha with body, speech and mind. And you take the ten precepts which are about you know, purifying the body, speech and mind. But of course, go, going for refuge, this, 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 this uh, idea of going for refuge is not um, new. It, it, it goes right back to the Buddha. There are many, many stories in the Pali Canon of, of people being deeply moved by the Buddha. Something has been revealed to them, something new, something fresh, something so exciting and so, so wonderful that they just say, Buddhang Saranangachami, Dharmang Dharmang Saranangachami, Sanhang Saranangachami. To the Buddha for refuge I go. To the Dharma for refuge I go. To the Sangha for refuge I go. So I would really recommend you go into the Pali Canon and you, you kind of again root out stories of people who, who meet the Buddha and they're so moved by by what he reveals to them, that by his teachings, that they, they, they exclaim um, in different ways. It's like carrying a lamp into darkness so that, that they have eyes that will see and so forth. These wonderfully poetic but very powerful expressions of gratitude to the Buddha. So we can now see not only where the going for refuge has its origins in terms of the, the Buddhist tradition, but I think what I've what I pointed out is something of its tremendous spiritual significance. That going for refuge represents your positive 
emotional response, um, in fact your total response in a way, to the spiritual ideal. When that ideal is revealed to you, to your spiritual vision, if you like. So, you may have walked into the, into, when you first walked into this room, uh, looking at the Buddha, the image of the Buddha, you felt some, you felt some kind of communication. But such is its appeal that you cannot, you cannot but just give yourself up to it in a certain way. As Tennyson says, we, we needs must love the highest when we see it. In other words, in a way we haven't got much choice. When we see something which really stirs us, then, then, then we might be very strongly drawn towards it. Now I just want to say something about the placing of the going for refuge section within the sevenfold puja. Because as I said earlier in the, uh, in the talk, I believe that the going for refuge section is right at the heart of, of, of the puja. And immediately after chanting the, the, the uh, refuges to the Buddha for, Dharma, for refuge I go, to the Dharma for refuge I go, to the Sangha for refuge I go, and you do it three times, body, speech and mind, what do you do? You chant the precepts. We, we recite the precepts immediately after reciting the refuges. And I think we recite the, the, the precepts because they are one of the most practical ways of practicing the Dharma. Practical and important ways, actually, of, of, of practicing the Dharma in our everyday life, lives. It's not enough to say, yes, I take refuge in the Buddha, yes, I take refuge in the Dharma and, the Sangha, and Dharma, yes, I take refuge in the Sangha. If we feel this sincerely enough, we will want to act upon it. And as a, one way of acting upon this heartfelt connection or stirrings presented to us by the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha is to practice uh, the, 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 the precepts. Now we're all capable of practicing precepts. We are all capable. Every single person in this room can practice the ethics without exception. But we have to want to practice ethics in, in, in the Buddhist tradition. We have to have a conviction that the Buddha was right when he said, if you act in this way, happiness will follow for you and others. If you act in this way, unhappiness will follow for you and for others. It's the classic to opening two verses of the Dharmapada. We have to have a kind of conviction that it's worth as it, trying to practice uh, ethics. It's worth trying to develop uh, skillful states of mind and try and move away from the proliferation of unskillful states of mind within our own minds for the benefit of ourselves and for the benefit of others. And we have to have a kind of a, a conviction that yes, our actions do have consequences for ourselves and for others. And to the extent that we hold this conviction will determine how carefully we practice ethics in our everyday lives. Of course we don't kill. But there are many, many ways of, of, of not practicing the first precept. And they get subtle, subtler and subtler and subtler and subtler. And one thing I've learned over the years of practice is that the practice of the ethics, the practice of ethical life, 
keeps going. It keeps going and going and going and going as we open up to, uh, to the Dharma. Similarly, our practice of meditation. We, I think we, it's really important that we have a conviction that it's actually worth doing. It's actually worth meditating because it will make a difference. Not necessarily after meditation A, but <coughs> in the future. You know, the, 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 the slow but cumulative effects of meditation will build. And we, I think we've got to have some confidence in that. And the word for this kind of trust and confidence in, in the Buddhist tradition is shraddha. And it can be translated as placing one's heart upon. So one has a growing confidence and trust that perhaps in the Buddhist teachings really does make a difference for ourselves and for others. They really do work. And shraddha is the fuel, if you like, that, that supports our, our, our efforts uh, in our practice. It actually moves us along the spiritual path. And it's actually Shraddha, I think, that makes going for refuge possible. Because without Shraddha, then going for refuge is not possible. Because in, it, with, when we start to experience Shraddha, we are drawn towards the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. But faith has to be worked upon. Uh, in, in the years of practice, my, my shraddha has gradually grown in strength in, and, and breadth. And I think the development of shraddha is very important, especially in the early stages of, 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 of the early years of, of exploring Buddhism. So in, in the Sevenfold Puja, the Refuges and precepts precept section is preceded by the Worship section which is there to help us connect with this response of Shraddha to the, to the, to, uh, the Buddha Dharma. It's there to, to prepare us for, for um, really taking on board the, the Refuges and Precepts section. So in the, in the worship section, we try and make a heartfelt connection with the Buddha in whatever way works for us, and a heartfelt connection that inspires us. After chanting the refuges and precepts, what happens next? Well, we, we want to confess. We, we, we really, we, we've said we really want to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We've, we've chanted the, the, uh, the precepts and we realise actually that those precepts, um, they, you know, I'm working on them, but I've got a load of stuff which uh, I've, I've breached the precepts. What do I do with that? Well, I, I confess it. So, um, in, in, the, in the puja, you've got the refuges and precepts, and then you've got um, confession of faults. And right at the end, you've got that beautiful, beautiful um, transference and merit section. I mean, I, the, the beauty of that section still kind of really stuns me. You know, for the words and the poetry, but also what it's trying to express, is quite phenomenal. It's not about just us. It's about us in relationship to, to the whole universe. That is, what, that is why, one reason why we go for refuge because we as individuals can impact, make a big impact upon this, this universe. And don't forget that. Don't forget that. Just don't, you're, not in this, you're not doing this just for yourselves. You're not in this alone. We're all trying to work towards something uh, together. 
So just before I close, a few words about um, development of Shraddha. If it's so important, how do we develop it? Well, we can develop Shraddha through meditation. Particularly as we, kind of, we start to you know, experience more absorption in meditation, we can get a glimpse, maybe, or a sense or a whiff of what the Buddha was trying to get at when he said that all things are conditioned. We get a sense of the enormous potential the mind has for positive emotion, for forgiveness, for joy, and so forth, you know, as experienced in, in the Metabhavna. We get a sense of this, uh, that, that we are connected to other people quite fundamentally. My suffering is your suffering, your suffering is my suffering, and so on. Your joys uh, are similar to, to my joys, and so forth. So the, the, the Metabhavna, in my experience, can open up a great, a beautiful vista of, of realising that I'm not alone. We can develop faith through puja and ritual. Puja and ritual, of course, speak to our non-rational minds, to our imagination. It's only the worship section. Imagine what it's like having the Buddha in front of you. Imagine the Buddha you know, communicating with people and really you know, impacting people's lives. Use your imagination in puja. Otherwise, the puja is dead. It's dull, I think. So, and, and doing puja puts us into contact with very important spiritual moods like worship, shraddha, and, 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 and so forth. And even if we sit there doing puja and we think, oh, I just really don't want to do this, you do it a bit begrudgingly. Sometimes the fact that you do it most more often not with other people can really just draw you along until by the end of the puja you think, that was great. That was really great. Wow. And who, as I say, cannot be moved by the exquisite sentiments of transference of merit? We can develop faith through visionary experiences. I'm not being um, funny here, but sometimes in meditation, um, things happen. And, I mean, I, was, I, I remember going on my first retreat down at Vajraloka, and suddenly uh, the Buddha appeared in front of me, and it was, it was really happening. And, and, but then he appeared to me again and then again. So in the space of a week, things were happening in my meditation which, which, beget, which really sowed the seeds of Shraddha and really sowed the, my connection with the Buddha. So if they happen, don't, you know, take, take them seriously, have a, have a, think about them. And sometimes people ask, why is my email bluecorn at mail.com? It's bluecorn, uh, I'm not going to say exactly why, but it's, it's it reminds me of the visions I had of the Buddha on, on uh, this retreat at Vajraloka. We can develop faith through the appreciation of art and beauty. Take yourself off into the countryside and, you know, um, or go and sit by a river and watch the beautiful grace of, a, of, of, of swans gliding across the surface of the water on a balmy summer afternoon. Bring, come to the centre. You know, the, 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 the beauty of this shrine room is ten times more than the beauty of my shrine at home. We can develop faith through study. And there's plenty of opportunities for study here at the centre. I've already mentioned getting to know the Buddha by dipping into the Pali Canon. But through, through, and through study we can experience, we can contact our response to truth. So when the Buddha says, if you act in this way, 
happiness will follow if we act in this way unhappiness will follow what is your response is it mm, no, I'm not sure if I believe that or, or, or not study engages the, the, the rational mind with the conceptual expressions of the Buddha's teaching it plants seeds which we go away and we mull over we think about we kind of try and get them to drop a bit deeper so we can develop faith through study we can develop faith through going on retreats day retreats, weekend retreats, longer retreats, where we can just step outside of our normal lives and, and, and just allow a bit more space of meditation to happen in and so forth. And finally, we can develop faith through friendship. And I think this, is a really imp- this has been a very, very important source of faith in, in my life. When I was Mitra Kavina, um for, for many Manchester, I, was, I, was, I, was, I experienced time and time again many men just grappling with the Dharma, uh, really trying to work it out, is this really for them or not? Working with their doubts, work, but conversely working with their inspiration and working with that tension between doubt and inspiration. And what, what made the difference was somebody stepping in and saying, are you okay? Do you want to talk about anything? So friendship is a very, very important part of, of practice and one that can give uh, I- I- immeasurable support. And because it's had such a crucially important uh, role to play in my own uh, life, in my own spiritual life, I'm very keen to kind of give back what I received. So I want to conclude now. I've been talking for 50 minutes and it's time to, to wrap up. The, as I say, there's, there's so much more I could have said uh, about this, this topic of going for refuge. But what I've tried to communicate to you is why, what it w- something of what it is, what does it mean, and, and also why bother? Why bother going for refuge to the Buddha Dharma Sangha? And it's partly been a personal account, but maybe you've made uh, one or two connections yourself with you know, the importance of going for refuge. And as we go for refuge, the one thing which I love about going for refuge to the Buddha Dharma Sangha, it's non-ending. It just carries on and on and on. And I love that. It's like, oh, okay, you think, well, I've, I've cracked the five precepts now. But then something else opens up and then something else. There's always something to, to work on. And I think this is one of the great beauties of, of, of the spiritual life and deepening uh, kind of exploration of it. So good luck. Uh, good luck with your own practice and I hope uh, you've, you can take something away from this talk to, uh, to go and think about for yourselves and just, just really deepen your exploration of the Buddha, the Dharma in the context of Sangha. Thank you.